Hello fellow history nerds and welcome to the Bold Historian Podcast. This is episode 6, Doomsday, and this will be the final episode of season 1. And in this episode, we will follow William as he encounters another revolt, known as the Revolt of the Earls. Then we will fast forward a few years to the Great Survey and its outcome, what is now known as the Doomsday Book. However, before we move on into the episode, we have a message from Neil, the host of the Ancient History Hound podcast. Are you someone who is interested in ancient history? Perhaps you're someone new to it all. Alternatively, you might be someone who's studied or read a bit about it. Or maybe you're in between. Whatever your interest level or how much you know, the Ancient History Hound podcast could be the podcast for you. Hi, my name's Neil, and as you've probably guessed, I'm the host. I love ancient history. I studied it at uni many, many years ago. In fact, back then it was called Current Affairs. My podcast is all about finding interesting areas of ancient history and talking about it. I sometimes have guests, and there's a variety of topics. You can check for yourself. Just use the platform you get your podcasts on and have a look. I reckon there'll be something you want to listen to. The next time you have a few minutes, why not check out the Ancient History Hound podcast? It'll be great to have you join me. Thank you, Neil. So, we skip ahead a few years from the previous episode on to 1075, and we see yet another revolt against William. And this was the revolt of the Earls. And this was not your typical English revolt against the Norman overlords. This revolt centred around two Norman Earls, Roger of Hereford and Earl Ralph, the Earl of Norfolk. Both men were related through Emma, the sister of Roger, the Earl of Hereford, and Emma married the Earl of Norfolk. Both men had inherited their earldoms from their fathers during William's reign. However, both men were upset by the reduced power and area of their respective earldoms. So when they inherited the earldoms from their fathers, William had reduced them in size, in line with the practice of creating earldoms that were based on single shires, rather than stretching across counties. And this was the norm in William's domain of Normandy. The historian Mark Morris suggests there is no clear motive behind the revolt, but he does suggest this is the most likely reason. And Earl Roger was particularly angered because royal sheriffs were holding pleas within his earldom, which did not occur during his father's lifetime. So the reduced scope of authority is a motive we have seen before in previous revolts, such as when Edwin and Morka rebelled against William because their authority was reduced in their earldoms. Both men were related through Emma, the sister of Roger, the Earl of Hereford. Emma married the Earl of Norfolk. And this made the two men natural allies. So at the beginning of the revolt, the Earl of Hereford, Roger, raised an army and proceeded to march east with the intention of drawing forces with Ralph, who was himself marching from East Anglia. However, Roger was stopped in his tracks by Wolfston, the Bishop of Worcester, who was in command of the Worcestershire Feuard, the local county levy. The clash between the two forces took place at the River Severn. Wolfston was the last remaining Anglo-Saxon bishop in England. And so it is interesting that the last Anglo-Saxon bishop led an English feud to fight for the first Norman king of the English against two Norman earls. The past 11 years had clearly seen major changes in loyalty towards William, and his reign was becoming more legitimate and accepted by the Anglo-Saxons. At the same time Earl Roger was marching east, Earl Ralph was marching west, and like his ally, Ralph's progress was stopped in its tracks and he came up against William's brother, Odo, and Geoffrey de Montbray, 
and they were the bishops of Bayeux and Coustance, respectively, and Odo was also the Earl of Kent. And both bishops were seasoned soldiers, having fought in William's campaigns in Normandy, and also during the Battle of Hastings, and the subsequent campaign and revolts against William. Geoffrey was also present at William's coronation as king at Westminster Abbey, during which he asked the attendees if they consented for William to be crowned as king of the English. And Geoffrey also held estates in southwest England and was responsible for the defence of the northern coastline of Somerset and Devon. And as in previous episodes, we've seen the offspring of Harold Godwinson having landed in Somerset and Devon, raiding and pillaging along the coastlines. So it's easy to see why William entrusted this defence to Geoffrey, the warrior bishop. And at the time of the revolt of the earls, Odo and Geoffrey were in charge of running the kingdom in William's absence, as the king at this time was in Normandy. So let's return to East Anglia. Earl Ralph also came up against resistance from the locals and his fellow Normans who garrisoned the castles in the area. But there are two varying accounts of the action in East Anglia. Orderic Vitalis states a battle was fought at Forden, where Ralph was defeated by an English army. Whereas in contrast, John of Worcester claims a large force of English and Normans moved towards Ralph's camp near Cambridge, but there is no suggestion from John of Worcester that a battle actually took place there. So it's quite possible that a battle took place not long after Ralph and his army broke camp. So following his defeat, Ralph fled back to Norfolk, where he then went on to Brittany. It's possible that Ralph had gone to muster reinforcements from either Brittany or from his Danish allies. And Ralph's wife Emma was left to defend Norwich Castle whilst he raised more troops for the campaign. But this defence of Norwich Castle was not successful. After a siege, Emma sought terms of surrender with the royal forces. She agreed that she and her husband's followers could leave the castle unharmed but had to return to Brittany and never to return to England. The Bretons were expelled from England, and there was no love lost between the Bretons and the Normans. And we can see this in a letter from Lanfranc to William, which confirmed England, quote, had been purged of its Breton filth, unquote. The revolt of the Earls may have been defeated, but England faced an old foe, the Danes. So it's possible that Ralph had indeed travelled to Denmark to secure assistance from the king there, and it seems this was successful. By this time, William had arrived back in England. Upon hearing this, the Danes decided it was a better option to revert back to what they knew best, and this was raiding. And they raided along the east coast, and York Cathedral was plundered before the Danes sailed back across the North Sea to Denmark. William spent Christmas at Westminster and sentenced the remaining Breton rebels. As was the normal custom, enemies were not executed. Some were banished from the kingdom, and some were blinded. And Roger, the Earl of Hereford, Ralph's co-conspirator, was soon captured. He lost his lands and was sentenced to imprisonment by William for the rest of his life. However, upon the king's death in 1087, Roger was freed along with other prisoners. So we've met two of the earls who were involved in this revolt. And now let's meet the third earl. And this was Wulthioth, the Earl of Northumbria. And he had played no active part in the revolt. In fact, it is thought, once he was informed by the Earls Roger and Ralph of their intentions, he immediately travelled to see Lanfranc and exposed a plot against the King. However, there is one train of thought that Wulfioth did in fact sit on the information for a while before going to Lanfranc, and maybe this is what sealed his fate. Wulfioth was married to Judith, the niece of William, 
and due to the uncertainty of his involvement in the plot, it was generally thought he would avoid any harsh punishment. He was arrested and held for several months in Winchester. And Woodthioff was then found guilty of treason and was sentenced according to the English custom. He was beheaded on the 31st of March 1076 at St. Doyle's Hill in Winchester. He was the only Anglo-Saxon noble to be executed during the reign of William. And so there was one earl remaining with which William had to deal with. So in the summer of 1076, William crossed the Channel and marched upon Brittany. The Earl of Norfolk had entrenched himself in Dole Castle in Brittany with his supporters and had been raiding into West Normandy. Some of the soldiers serving Ralph were provided by Geoffrey IV, who was the Count of Anjou, and this suggested Ralph was allied with Anjou at the time, and possibly the Count of Flanders and also the King of France, William's former erstwhile enemies. So during the revolt in Brittany, William fought on the side of the Duke of Brittany, Hoel II, who was fighting an uprising within the duchy. William raided into Ralph's lands and then besieged the castle of Dole, but was forced to retreat due to reinforcements arriving from the King of the French, and this was the first defeat of William's military career, ending the revolt of the earls. However, this was not the last uprising against William, but it was the last significant one. Following a raid into England by the King of Scots, the Bishop of Durham, the de facto Earl of Northumbria, was murdered, and this was most likely due to a blood feud, an Anglo-Saxon legacy. This feud grew into what appeared to be a rebellion. However, the rebels attempted to capture Durham Castle, but were ultimately unsuccessful in this endeavour. The Northumbrian rebellion fizzled out, and the last Anglo-Saxon nobles of Northumbria went into exile following a campaign into Northumbria by Odo, the king's brother. The area was laid to waste. Odo carried out harrying of the north a second time, but on a more localised but still horrific scale. The power of the Anglo-Saxons in Northumbria was now broken. So the Kingdom of England was more secure than ever, yet there was no certainty that rebellion would not raise its ugly head again. Following the initial invasion and subsequent rebellions, the Normans had to at some point attempt to consolidate their position in England and to win over the population. In the modern era, we would call this winning over the hearts and minds of the kingdom. A conquest cannot be complete without propaganda. Winning the war is not the same as winning the peace. With each rebellion, there was a determination that no further rebellion would occur, so there were attempts to justify the invasion and conquest. And the Bay of Tapestry is one such piece of propaganda. It was completed in 1077. It depicts the events that led up to and include the Battle of Hastings. A piece of embroidered cloth, it is 70 metres long and 50 centimetres tall. It is thought it was made in England. This is the Normans owning the narrative, justifying William's invasion and his claim to the English throne. It is generally agreed that Odo, the king's brother, commissioned the tapestry. In the following year, in 1078, the construction of the White Tower in London and also Rochester Castle began under the leadership of Gundolf. At this point, modern bailies were now being replaced by stone keeps, and this is a more permanent fixture on the landscape showing the Anglo-Saxons the Normans were here to stay. The 1070s was a decade of major change within England, and it also saw a number of significant deaths for the Anglo-Saxons. Leofric, the Bishop of Exeter, and Stiggins, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, both died in 1072. 
Edith, the Queen of Edward the Confessor, died on 19th of December 1075. So, alongside the execution of Wulfiof, these deaths are highly important as they represent the last of the establishment of Anglo-Saxon England. So, the rise of the new stone keeps of the Normans were in stark contrast to the decline of Anglo-Saxon power in England. And there was more change. The new forest in Hampshire was proclaimed as a royal forest in 1080, and the idea of forests was introduced into England by the Normans. With every invasion and conquest, the imposition of the aggressor's culture and way of life gradually comes to the fore. The forest law was established to preserve the area and to make its use exclusive to the king, and any person who broke the forest law faced severe punishments. The new forest is recorded in the Doomsday Book as Nova Foresta. And this brings us nicely to 1085, and we will now look at the Great Survey, of which the output of this survey was the most famous English government document in history, and this was the Doomsday Book of 1086. It was also known in Latin as Liber de Ratonia, meaning the Book of Winchester, and this could be evidence the numerous surveys carried out across England were compiled into one single document in Winchester, and the manuscript itself was written in Latin. And it also must be noted that the name Doomsday Book was not coined until the 12th century. This survey is generally called the First Census. However, unlike a modern census, the purpose was to determine who owned what in the Kingdom of England and also in parts of Wales that were under normal control. Essentially, this was a tool to ascertain what taxes, military service and rents were owed to the Crown. So the King wanted to maximise the benefits that his rights as King of the English entailed, and it was not a census as it did not seek to determine the population number of England or to understand the demographics of the Kingdom. Another effect of the survey was that the population of England would be under no doubt that the Normans were effectively stating they owned England, and their position as rulers was now cemented. Hence the term Doomsday Book. So the king's agents were sent into every shire, and each agent was armed with the same fixed questions in order to be able to compile the varying surveys into one giant survey and to be universal, and this would be known as Great Doomsday. Before the Norman invasion and conquests, Anglo-Saxon England was one of the richest countries in Europe, and this was due to the centralised nature in which England was governed. Yet no survey on the scale of the Great Survey itself was ever conducted. Under the Normans, England became less centralised. As mentioned earlier in the episode, the earldoms of England became smaller in size, but became more numerous. And so the Great Survey can be seen as the final great act of the Norman conquest under William. It could not have been carried out without the consolidation of Norman power and the cooperation of the population at large. Two years after the publication of the Doomsday Book, William the Conqueror died in Normandy. So, what can we say were the effects of the Norman Conquest on Anglo-Saxon England? First of all, and most significant, was the gradual loss of power and influence of the Anglo-Saxon nobles and clergy. By the time William died, there were no Anglo-Saxon nobles or clergy in England. The total takeover of the Normans was complete. The House of Wessex, the longest reigning royal house in Anglo-Saxon England, notwithstanding the few times a foreign king ruled England, became extinct as a ruling dynasty, even though William was related to the House of Wessex through his great-aunt, Emma of Normandy, who, as you mentioned earlier, had married Edward the Confessor. 
the Norman Bishop, Lanfranc, who became the Archbishop of Canterbury, reformed the English Church and attempted to model it on the Norman Church. So the two great pillars of medieval society, the secular state and the church, had fallen under the total control of the Normans. The second change was that England became less centralised with the parceling out of lands to the Normans and their allies. And this was a classic example of divide and conquer and was implemented once William realised the Anglo-Saxons were not willing to accept him as the king of the English. And the third change was that England became a state that was more focused on their relations across the channel towards mainland Europe. The focus of the Anglo-Saxon government was on their relationships across the North Sea with the Danes and Norwegians, and to a lesser extent the Holy Roman Empire. Due to William's position as Duke of Normandy, the focus shifted to the politics of the French Kingdom, and the subsequent wars fought between England and France can be traced back to the Norman Conquest. And the fourth change is the Normans gradually outlawed the selling and ownership of slaves. The practice itself was looked upon with revulsion by the Normans. However, the serfs of medieval England did not fare much better than the slaves. And finally, the architecture of England changed. The Normans built numerous castles across England to stamp their authority and to enable them to effectively police the population. And the Romanesque style of architecture was also evident in the new Norman cathedrals and churches built after 1066. There was no doubt the landscape confirmed to the Anglo-Saxons the Normans were now in charge. And that's it for the first season of the Bold Historian podcast. I thank you for listening to the whole season and to episode 6. Season 2 is now in production and will focus on eight naval battles across the ages. So once again, thank you for listening. And I'll see you on the next season and the next episode. Thank you and goodbye.